It's Christmas! Well, tonight, thank God it's there instead of you. Oh, Christmas Day, my ass. I'm driving home for Christmas. Oh, I can't wait to see those faces. Christmas to you and all. Hello, all you festive people. This is Adam, your host of Merry Britsmas, the podcast that explores British Christmas music, TV, and traditions. This episode is the 2nd November episode, and I continue to get super Christmassy with one of the most popular British Christmas songs, at least in this country, some Christmas poems, and a time traveling journey on the Titanic, kind of. In the next couple of weeks, the finale of Doctor Who's latest series, exploring a whole storyline called The Flux, will air on TV and begin the end of the Jodie Whittaker era as the Doctor. The first female Doctor is due to appear in a few specials next year before leaving the show for a replacement takeover, as always. With that in mind, and the fact I've already covered a couple of Christmas specials of Doctor Who over the last couple of years, I thought it was time to take on another. And there are quite a few, with Doctor Who running for quite a long time and the tradition of Doctor Who Christmas specials being a thing that went on for quite a few years as well. If you don't know what Doctor Who is about, well, you're kind of a rarity, and evidently you didn't hear my earlier episodes. Basically, the Doctor is a Time Lord from the planet called Gallifrey. Although recent episodes may be investigating a different origin for this enigmatic character, they travel through time and space in a craft called the TARDIS, permanently disguised as a police phone booth from the 1960s. The Doctor investigates alien plots and mysteries, usually with a companion or two, along for the ride. I'm taking the TARDIS back to 2007, the third Christmas special of the new run, written by showrunner Russell T Davis and directed by James Strong, who is also the lead director on Broadchurch, the hit crime show. Fan favourite and Broadchurch star David Tennant was the Doctor at this time, having done two series already. In the finale of the previous series, the bow of a ship called the Titanic burst through the side of the TARDIS, leaving a mysterious proper cliffhanger to excite viewers for the Christmas special. What? However, when the Christmas special arrived, called The Voyage of the Damned, on Christmas Day in 2007, this is quickly repaired as the Doctor boards the craft and sets his TARDIS to self-repair mode. The Doctor's previous companion, Martha, had left to look after their family in the last episode, so he was alone once again, a recurring theme in the Doctor's cycles of regenerations. We find out the Titanic is actually a spacefaring replica of the original Earth ship, with the key difference being this one is an interstellar cruise ship full of alien beings keen to visit Earth, a primitive culture to them, to see how Christmas Day is celebrated. The Titanic is now in orbit above Sol 3, also known as Earth. Population, human. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Christmas. The cruise liners are run by Max Capricorn, a typically sleazy looking and sounding rich guy. Max Capricorn cruise liners. Fastest, the furthest, the best. 
And I should know because my name is Max. And on board are golden angelic robots called the Heavenly Host. Passenger 57, terrible memory. Remind me, uh, you would be... Information. Heavenly Host supplying tourist information. Good. So, um, tell me again, because I'm an idiot. Where are we from? Information. The Titanic is on route from the planet Stowe in the Casavalian belt. The purpose of the cruise is to experience primitive cultures. Titanic, um, who thought of the name? Information. It was chosen as the most famous vessel of the planet Earth. Did they tell you why it was famous? But some of them seem to be acting up. Information. All designations are chosen by Mr. Max Capricorn, president of Max. 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 Software problem, that's all. Leave it there, sir. Merry Christmas. It's another one done. What's going on with these things? The Doctor meets a waitress called Astrid, played by pop superstar Kylie Minogue, with a character apparently being written for her. I'm the Doctor, by the way. Astrid, sir. Astrid Peth. Nice to meet you, Astrid. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, sir. Just Doctor, not sir. You enjoying the cruise? Um, yeah, I suppose. I don't know. You don't quite work a cruise on your own. You're not with anyone? No, no, just me. Just, uh... Used to be, but, uh... No. What about you? Long way from home. Planet Stowe. Doesn't feel that different. Spent three years working at the spaceport diner. Travel all the way here. I'm still waiting on tables. She's out a long way from home because, as the doctor puts it... You dreamt of another sky. New sun. New air. New life. The whole universe teeming with life. Why stand still when there's all that life out there? The Doctor also meets a couple who won tickets for the cruise, Foon and Morvin, who were tricked and laughed at by the richer travellers. Baby! <laughs> <laughs> we like you! We do. I'm Morvin Banoff. This is my good woman, Foon. Foon! Hello, I'm the Doctor. Oh, I'm gonna need a Doctor time I finish with that buffet. Have a buffalo wing. They must be enormous, these mm. buffalo. So many wings. Mm. The tourists are set to visit Earth on Christmas Eve and the Doctor brings Astrid along. But Mr. Copper, the ship's historian, doesn't quite seem to know the real facts. And I should be taking you to old London town in the country of UK, ruled over by good King Wenceslas. Now, human beings worship the great god Santa, creature with fearsome claws, uh, and his wife Mary. And every Christmas Eve, the people of UK go to war with the country of Turkey they then eat the turkey people for Christmas dinner, like savages. Excuse me, uh, sorry, sorry, but um, where did you get all this from? Well, I have a first-class degree in economics. The Doctor also raises a concern when he sees a small, red-headed alien called Banakafalata. Try saying that five times fast. But, um, hold on, hold on, uh, what was your name? Banakafalata. Okay. Banner but it's Christmas Eve down there. Late night shopping, tons of people, he's like a talking conquer. 
No offence, but you'll cause a riot because the streets are going to be packed with shoppers and parties and people and... and... But the streets are empty, and a newspaper vendor explains why. Hello there. Sorry. Um, obvious question. But where's everybody gone? Oh, scared. Right, yes. Scared of what? Where have you been living? London? At Christmas? Not safe, is it? Why? Well, it's them up above. Look, Christmas before last, we had that big bloody spaceship, everyone standing on a roof. And then last year, that Christmas star electrocuting all over the place, draining the Thames. This place is amazing. And this year, God knows what. So everybody's scarping, going to the country. All except me and Her Majesty. Her Majesty the Queen has confirmed that she'll be staying in Buckingham Palace throughout the festive season to show the people of London and the world that there's nothing to fear. Yeah, God bless her. The vendor is actually Wilfred Mott, a character played by Bernard Cribbins, who comes to be a future companion Donna Noble's grandfather in later episodes. The group are suddenly teleported back to the ship due to power fluctuations, which may be more dangerous than first assumed. Meteoroids are nearby and the captain instructs a new young officer, played by the brilliant Russell Tovey, to ignore it and not worry, rather suspiciously. That's a bit odd, sir. The meteoroids are changing course. Still, we can put the shields up to maximum just in case. As you were, midshipman. Sir? You're magnetising the hole, sir. It's drawing the meteors in. Port turning earth. I take it that's deliberate. Port turning earth side. Bit of a light show for the guests. Something like that. But the doctor realises that the shields are down as the meteorites approach. Is that the bridge? I need to talk to the captain. You've got a meteoroid storm coming in West Zero by North Two. Who is this? Never mind that. Your shields are down. Check your scanners, captain. You've got meteoroids coming in and no shielding. You have no authorization. You will clear the comms at once. Yeah, just real starboard. If you could come with me, sir. And the captain shoots the new officer to stop him from doing anything about it, revealing this was all intentional as his family were given vast amounts of money. The doctor is taken by security before the ship is hit. After the disaster, the Doctor is left with the aforementioned individuals he's met, as well as a pompous, wealthy rude man called Rixton Slade. You, what was your name? Uh, Rixton Slade. You alright? Oh, no thanks to that idiot. Stuart just died. Then he's a dead idiot. And the hosts, meanwhile, seem to not quite be helping the injured and trapped survivors. Don't just stand there! Get this thing off me! Host, that's an order! Help me! That is your job, isn't it? Information. We now have only one function. And what's that? Information. To kill. What are you doing? Host! I'm ordering you. Stop it. Stop it right now! The Doctor manages to make contact with a young, injured officer on the bridge, midshipman Alonzo Frame, and finds out the failing engines could lead to the ship colliding with Earth and destroying the planet. So he sets out his plan. Ship. First things first. One, we're going to climb through this ship. B, no. T, 
Two, we're going to reach the bridge. Three, or C, we're going to save the Titanic. And coming in a very low four, or D, or that little IV in brackets, they use in footnotes. Why? Right then, follow me. Hang on a minute. Who put you in charge? And who the hell are you anyway? I'm the Doctor. I'm a Time Lord. I'm from the planet Gallifrey in the constellation of Casterberus. I'm 903 years old, and I'm the man who's going to save your lives and all six billion people on the planet below. They set off having to overcome issues such as damaged stairwells, dangerous hosts and personal conflict. And they also realise it's Christmas Day. Rather ironic, but this is very much in the spirit of Christmas. It's a festival of violence. They say that human beings only survive depending on whether they've been good or bad. It's barbaric. Actually, that's not true. Christmas is a time of, of peace and thanksgiving and... Whilst crossing a dangerous bridge, Morvin falls to his death accidentally, and then both Banakafalata and Foon sacrifice themselves to save the others from the attacking hosts. You're coming with me. A now enraged and determined doctor tricks the hosts and gets to say, Take me to your leader. I've always wanted to say that. And he finds someone interesting. Only one person can have the power and the money to hide themselves on board like this. And I should know, because my name is Max. And they are now just ahead inside a large, square robotic life support system leading to some terrible Christmas cracker-style jokes. You're giving me so much good material, like how to get ahead in business. See? Head? Head? Head in the nose? Oh, the office joker! And the Doctor figures out the motivation of Capricorn. Business is failing, and you wreck the ship, so that makes things even worse. Oh, yes! No. Yes. The business isn't failing. It's failed. Past tense. My own board voted me out. Stab me in the back! If you had a back. So, you scuffle the ship, wipe out any survivors just in case anyone's rumbled you, and the board find their shares halved in value. Oh, but that's not enough. No. Because if a Max Capricorn ship hits the Earth, it destroys an entire planet. Outrage back home. Scandal! The business is wiped out. And... The whole board thrown in jail for mass murder. Capricorn then cancels the engines from his machine, leading Astrid to drive a mini forklift into his robotic form and tossing him down into the engine pit. But she goes with him to her death. The distraught doctor gets to the bridge in time to restart the failing engine with the heat of entering Earth's atmosphere, just saving the ship in time to avoid hitting Buckingham Palace, of course. In a final magic moment, he manages to restore the form of Astrid due to her wearing a teleportation device from earlier, but he's urged by Mr. Copper to let her go, linking to the Doctor's recent distress about losing her companion. There's not enough left. The system is too badly damaged. She's just atoms, Doctor. An echo with the 
ghost of consciousness. She's stardust. Astrid Path, citizen of stardust. All men have looked at the stars and dreamt of travelling. He also deposits Mr. Copper on Earth, who reveals... Give me that credit card. Well, it's just uh, petty cash, spending money. Uh, uh, it's all done by computer. I, I didn't really know the currency, so I thought a million might come. A million? Pounds? Well, enough for trinkets. Mr. Copper, a million pounds is worth 50 million credits. How much? 50 million and 56. So the Doctor sets off on his own again. It's a fun special with interesting characters, even though it strays into the cheesy at times, like sometimes the best of Doctor Who does. There's some odd individuals, some over-the-top villainy. It's fun, timey-wimey madness, and I really like Tennant's portrayal of the character throughout his run, especially here as a torn and emotionally wrought Avenger and protector. Kylie was also really good as Astrid, and brought a surprising sweetness to the role. It was tense in the right places, but a couple of characters were a little annoying, including the alien Banacathalata, who just seemed a bit too weird to like at times. It's not my favourite Christmas special of the show, but it's relatively festive, more than I remembered actually before re-watching. And there are still plenty more Doctor Who episodes to explore, so allons-y. I may have mentioned before that I am an English teacher, and therefore I'm a fan of literature, of pretty much all sorts. I've always had an on-off enjoyment of poetry, but have recently begun to look at more from all sorts of places and writers, including, of course, festive poems. So I thought I'd share some interesting British poems with you, as a change from my usual blast of traditional history. There'll be more of those in the future. Wendy Cope is a poet who worked as a primary school teacher for 15 years after graduating up from Oxford. She went on to become an arts reviewer and editor for the Inner London Education magazine. Then she wrote for The Spectator, she had a first collection of poetry published in 1986 and four more published since, along with two for children and a number of limited editions and poems published elsewhere. She was awarded an OBE in 2010 for her services to literature. Her poetry is known for its humour, using comical light-hearted twists on serious subjects and issues, especially to do with everyday English life, with its problems, frustrations and odd little moments. She has written a number of festive poems over the years and they were collected together into a short book, by publisher Faber and Faber in 2017. And of course, I got a copy. I thought I'd read you a few I really like today, and perhaps you can buy it to read the rest if you enjoy them. The first one is called Little Donkey, the children's favorite. We had to sing it in the Christmas concert every year, plodding along with me at the piano and a child going clip-clop with coconut shells or woodblock, a coveted job. It wasn't my favorite. After I left teaching, I forgot about it for more than 10 years, until one day, Near Christmas, in a busy high street, a Salvation Army band began to play it. I stood still, with tears in my eyes. Little donkey. All those children who loved it so much. All those hands in the air, begging to be chosen, to make the sound of his hooves. The next poem, which I think perfectly captures one of the more frustrating elements of festive celebration, is called Motorway Music. At last, in spite of everything, the moment does arrive. This year, it was on Christmas Eve, tea time, M25. When I switched on the radio and I heard Noel, Noel, and had to join in singing for the King of Israel. Along with half the choirs on earth and all the choirs of heaven, as I drove through the pouring rain approaching Junction 7, 
And then my passenger woke up and came in with his base. I wanted to see happiness like hours on every face. In every car, the traffic slowed, the queue went on and on. The sound of trumpets introduced another Christmas song. Who cares about a traffic jam while herald angels sing? Each year the moment does arrive in spite of everything. And the final poem in the anthology, a very, very short poem, another Christmas poem. Bloody Christmas here again, let us raise a loving cup. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, and make them do the washing up. The song I've picked this week is probably the most loved Christmas song by British people, yet is little heard outside of these shores. In fact, many Americans I've spoken to, including those in the Christmas podcast community, either barely know it or don't know it at all. That is until I tell them all about it. And what makes it so odd is how huge it is here. Every Christmas, in every pub and bar, this song is played and everyone in the place sings along, arm in arm, emotions overflowing, loving the experience. It's inevitable. However, despite that, there's a bit of controversy that's been bubbling up about this song that I'll have to discuss too. Firstly, let's jump back to 1987, when Irish singer Shane McGowan and his band The Pogues teamed up with singer-songwriter Kirsty McColl to record A Fairy Tale of New York in a studio in London. It was Christmas Eve, babe In the drunk tank An old man said to me The song began life two years earlier, but the band were formed back in 1982, with Shane meeting one member in the toilets at a Ramones gig. The band formed an engaging folk punk sound that caught the imagination of audiences, especially at their very raucous live sets. Kirsty McCall was also in punk bands, but found it difficult with the men in the industry. She was with one band, and they were all boys, and she used to come back very depressed that they didn't listen to what she had to say. It was quite funny when uh, <coughs> Stiff heard them. They only wanted Kirsty, they didn't want the boys. But she found solo success after being signed to Stiff Records, an independent label famous for punk and new wave. The Pogues manager apparently suggested a Christmas song to the band, initially suggesting a cover, but the band wanted to write their own, and a duet was proposed, originally between McGowan and the female bassist in the Pogues, Cotto Reardon. The banjo player, Finer, came up with the initial lyrics of a down-on-their-luck couple. Shane took it and added the New York twist, being interested in the idea of Irish immigrants in America. In a brilliant BBC documentary, we can hear the first demo with O'Reardon singing. Here exclusively is the demo of Fairy Tale of New York. It also features original vocalist Cotter Reardon. The producer of the band at this time was Elvis Costello, who asked for a title, and McGowan came up with Fairy Tale of New York after looking at a book of the same name nearby by an Irish American writer, J.P. Don Levy, and thankfully he approved of the whole thing. He explained to me that uh, it was his father was a big fan of mine and read the, most of the books, I believe, and um, he did this as a favor to his father, in effect, to recognize the fact that his father read my books and was a fan. But the band didn't feel the song was quite there, so it was shelved whilst they toured. During this time, the bassist O'Riordan left the band and married Eric Clapton, so they no longer had a female voice. Strangely, a bout of pneumonia 
helped McGowan come up with the final lyrics, and they booked a studio space in 1987 to record. But a lack of a female voice was still an issue. The band recorded the music with a producer called Steve Lillywhite, who happened to be married to a singer called Kirsty McColl. So he brought her in, and they recorded the classic. The song itself is mournful, depressing, jaunty all at once, veering from a morose argument between two at-war lovers, and a joyous chorus that has bells ringing and choirs singing. And as Helen Brown of the Daily Telegraph wrote about the song, as McCollum McCowan's dialogue descends from the ecstasy of their first kiss to an increasingly vitriolic argument, their words put the average family's seasonal bickering into perspective. You're a bum, you're a punk, you're an old on junk. The song's row ends with an expression of love and hope against the odds, as McGowan's character promises McCall's that, far from wrecking her dreams, he's kept them with his own. Can't make it alone, he pleads. I've built my dreams around you. The video featured actor Matt Dillon, who, as an Irish-American, was a fan of the band. He plays a police officer throwing a drunken Shane McGowan into a cell. The single was released on 23rd of November, 1987, and was a contender for Christmas number one but it was beaten to the top spot by the Pet Shop Boys, All Was On My Mind, and Shane wasn't quite a fan of that song. I thought it was a disgusting record. It was a, a cynical, jaded, pathetic, like, uh, sort of, um, I, like, I quite liked the Pet Shop Boys before that. Regardless, the song itself became a classic, and has hit the top 20 every year at Christmas here since 2005. It was the most played Christmas song in the UK of the 21st century, and was voted the nation's favourite in an ITV special in 2012. It was number 11 on Channel 4's 100 Greatest Christmas Moments, number 96 in Q Magazine's 100 Greatest Songs of All Time, and number 84 in BBC Radio 2's 100 Greatest Songs of All Time. Very sadly and tragically, Kirsty McCall died in a boating accident just before Christmas in 2000, but her music and legacy lives on especially with this classic that's played up and down the nation every year. One last note on this song the controversy surrounding the F-slur for gay people being used in this song. The intent in the song is clear, and the characters in the lyrics are not at their best, argumentative immigrants from a difficult background. As Shane has said, this is the sort of language they'd use so it makes sense, but it's perfectly understandable why many people in the modern world might not like that song to become a flippant lyric, sung out at the top of people's lungs in bars and pubs up and down the country. The lyric has been changed to your cheap and your haggard by Kirsty herself all the way back in 1992 for a TV performance on Top of the Pops, and many performances since have done the same. Onto the covers. There aren't as many as I thought there might be of this, but I think a mixture of the classic nature and maybe the recent controversy have put some people off. Regardless, here are a few interesting ones. First up is a version from Scottish singer-songwriter Katie Tunstall with Ed Harcourt from 2007. It was Christmas Eve, babe In the drunk tank An old man said to me Won't see another one And then he sang a song The rare old mountain dew I turned my face 
more star-studded take comes with Ed Sheeran and Anna Marie, covering it for BBC Radio 1. Green of New York City When the band finished playing They yelled out for more Sinatra was swinging All the drunks they were singing And we kissed on the corner And danced through the night The boys in the NYPD choir Still singing Go away And the bells are ringing out On Christmas Day Now, a more chilled version from a producer called Rustam for Amazon Music. You took my dreams from me When I first found you I kept them with me, babe I put them with my own Can't make it all alone I built my dreams around Finally, an even more low-key version from Vance Joy recorded in lockdown last year. I could have been someone Well, so could anyone You took my dreams from me When I first found you I kept them with me, babe now put them with my own I can't make it out alone I build my dreams around you And the boys of the NYPD choir Still singing Go away babe And the bells are ringing out For Christmas Day My next two episodes will be December ones, so expect even more Christmas fun and absurdity. If you'd like to get in touch to tell me if you like The Voyage of the Damned or you're a fan of Fairytale New York, especially if you're not British, please do it Instagram, Facebook or Twitter at Merry Britsmas. I'll be starting my Advent countdown with some interesting pictures of Father Christmases of Britain on December 1st, so keep an eye out. An happy blooming Christmas to you and all.